but there's a real obsession with the beginning of an artist's career and their first breakthrough. Um, and we attach a great amount of value to that sort of point of origin in their creativity. And value tends to then sort of descend proportionally from that moment. It's taken a very long time for people to celebrate the incredible, unique creativity and contemporaneity, for example, of Picasso's late works. But now that's a period that is arguably the most commercial. But it, there's an evolution of taste and understanding required to get to that point. Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. Live Arts look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Maniker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the Live Art app to get all of the most relevant art market information, as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. The sale of Harry and Linda Macklow's art collection was one of the most anticipated events of 2021. The first part of the two-part sale was held in November. Sotheby's had made an aggressive play for the collection. As Brooke Lampley points out in this podcast, a new team was in place with a lot to lose from a week's sale. The sale and the season saw prices beyond anyone's expectations. On May 16th, Sotheby's will sell another $200 million or more in art from the Macklow collection. These are additional examples of work by the artists the Macklows had bought in depth. Here's Brooke to explain more. Brooke, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Marianne. I'm so happy to be here. You guys did the Macklow sale last fall, and it made an astonishing $676 million. Now, uh, I won't ask you about the guarantee, but you certainly, by all estimates, exceeded, far exceeded the uh, guarantee uh, for the sale, which says a lot about the market, I suppose, on one side, but also a lot about the Macklow collection and its appeal. And I was struck by Andrew Fabricant making the statement uh, that Linda Macklow was very much the guiding force behind the collection. And I thought we could start, however briefly, in talking about Linda Macklow as a collector. Was it an extraordinary eye, uh, better access, perfect timing? I mean, they collected deep. Most of the artists they own, they own multiple works of. And as we'll get to when we talk about the results, there were some extraordinary uh, results. And so I thought we'd just start with Linda Macklow and what's the secret sauce in all of that. You know, it's a great question um, because I think people really received this as a fairly canonical, comprehensive representation of great art of the 20th century. But I think it's characterized by fearless commitment to artists who were beloved. Um, the collection is distinguished. The collection is distinguished by its extraordinary depth in the holdings of certain artists um, that also reflect a really great understanding of the artist's work over the course of their career. Um, so these aren't 
works that are in any way repetitive or redundant. Um, the collection aims to um, embrace and accurately represent the arc and fullness and diversity of several artists' careers, whether it's um, Agnes Martin, William de Kooning, um, Polka, um, so many artists are represent are represented in um, diverse examples. And I think that's part of what is so remarkable about this collection is that it's not just icons, trophies, singular works meant to encapsulate an artist. It's an exploration of depth and, you know, the, the variegated approaches that an artist took and what made them um, exceptional over the course of an entire career. Um, and you don't see that necessarily often in collections. You see a, um, a great accumulation of examples by artists or a great diversity of artists, but you don't often see that kind of um, career retrospective of an artist within a collection. Um, I think also the commitment to various um, practices by media. So looking at um, both painting and sculpture um, is very important here. Um, and the prescience must be noted. There, uh, and this was something that definitely we reflected on with collectors um, and buyers approaching the collection. Many of these works were bought out of the first shows where they were exhibited. Um, these are not works. There are some examples that were bought later, sure. Um, but by and large, these are not works that were bought with perfect 2020 hindsight. Um, and the curatorial canonization behind them, they were bought right in the period of execution. So um, that is really a testament to um, their the visionary nature of the collection. Um, that also adds to the value, right? The idea that you're getting a one-owner work that was bought straight out of either when it, near when it was made or the show that it came out of. So it's not just the Maclow's uh, uh, provenance as uh, respected collectors, but that prescience, however we want to put it, of, of the right time. It definitely enhances the provenance, um, but in the Maclows were well known in the art world. They um, could speak to and had access to great advice, um, and certainly that's reflected here, um, but that advice is so much easier to channel um, with years of hindsight and perspective. So I do think it's really a compliment to them, an achievement um, to have collected such great examples um, when they were contemporaneous um, in the moment that they were recently executed. So confidence too. Yeah. Bravery, yeah. So. Uh the other striking thing about the sale is, you know, the the art market is is very strong, but it's also very well priced. And I think the sale of the Rothko and the Giacometti showed how well priced it is. You guys are very good at the, this, and the people uh, uh, who are buying are also well advised and all. And so it, it the the numbers are there. So it's striking that there were a number of big surprises 
not at the top of the sale, but in the middle of the sale. And not for some overlooked artist, but artists like de Kooning and Pollock and Gustin. I mean, maybe Gustin is, you know, was on a bubble in so, some way and that was as strong as that. But, but talk to me a little bit about where that disparity comes from. Was it just that strategy on your part to price things in a way that was conservative and draw in more buyers? Was it just more not really being able to gauge until the day of sale what was going to happen? I would say that that disparity is related to and driven by market precedent. So where works like Rothko and Giacometti, for which there has been um, strong market precedent for um, huge results, or there have been great A-plus works that have come to market and demonstrated what the capacity of the market is for those artists. Um, the price expectation um, on behalf of any consigner, but on in the market, is going to be more generous. Um, whereas here, we also had A-plus examples of types of works that haven't come to market or haven't come to market as recently, where the maximum yield hasn't yet been demonstrated. And so then you get to experience a huge delta between the estimate or the suggestion and what the realized value is. Um, so I see that, you know, with the roster build. I see that um, with the de Koonings, which um, were a, were perfect examples of their type um, and received as such. Um, I see that um, you know, in many instances in this collection, um, you know, the Gustin, it was coming at just a completely opportune time in the market. Um, the confluence of the exhibition and um, it, the market was ripe for this. No, and the, the rise of the figurative works to a level of parity or even surpassing and a, a very good one, it seemed like a great moment. I, in a weird way, that was less of a surprise of a surprise than, say, the Pollock. I which... think for most people, the biggest surprise was the Pollock. Um, we all loved the Pollock. Like, I don't think that that was as much a surprise for us as it was for um, the audience, in a sense. Um, but yeah, absolutely, this was undiscovered territory um, in that market. And I, I think, you know, for us, we could feel that buzz from the minute we hung it. Like, the way that people responded to it, it was so visceral, so powerful, and you could tell that um, people were recontextualizing this work. That, that you're the perfect example is a great phrase for it because after that sale, you went back and looked at the other uh, black and white or black uh, Pollocks and you realized, wow, this really is the best of, uh, what are there, eight or ten of them? I can't remember the, the number. There are not a lot of them and this is basically the best one. That is the kind of um, logic or ammunition that greases an exceptional price. When you can point to a series and say, not only do you like this one, um, but you're responding to it because it's the very best of what it is. Um, that just makes it so much better to, or easier to break precedent. I suppose you could also say that about the Robert Irwin 
much lower on the scale, but it, uh, talk about a hundred percent. There's nothing else. You won't find anything else like this. This is such a rare example. Like there is no price context for this. This sits outside of context. So um, that was, you know, that was a difficult work to price. Is it a difficult work to sell? It was a difficult for me because I, I um, did speak to some people who who considered it um, and weren't necessarily deeply invested in that school of art, but they were curious about it. Yeah, it was on the more difficult side because it's a more conceptual piece. People like the comfort of price context. Um, they don't want to be on an island. They want to know, even if they're not planning to resell it forever, they want to know that um, they made a sound investment. Yeah, that required a little more um, encouragement or justification and um, context for people than other works. You guys also spent a lot of time building the context around um, one of the Agnes Martins. Uh, I can't remember what it was. That number eleven. The the. It, it, there are 39 of these works from the 70s of the size. 18 of them are in uh, public collections. You did a great job of sort of showing all of those works and, and, and which museums uh, they were in. Uh, so you were sort of building a framework or, or around two sides, that it was in this collection, but also that it, it, it would equally stand with uh, all these works in museum collections. And you certainly got a price uh, for that. Uh, I, I'm not sure what the question is, <laughs> except to say, is like, it, it, is that something you do when you have the material to do, or is that something you do because you felt you needed to be able to do do that with that uh, work? To you know? sometimes you do it just because the opportunity exists, but sometimes um, I think in that case, um, and you'll see this again with a Ryman coming up. It's about extending the understanding of the market where there's been a lot of focus and appreciation placed on an earlier period of work and helping people understand that there is an extended appreciation throughout the artist's career that they may be less familiar with and they are less familiar with it because maybe those examples haven't traded as much and so you need to give an amplified view of what the market looks like for a different period. And so this was also in Macklow, we had that opportunity to look at different moments in an artist's career and sort of fill out that narrative. And people don't realize, I think, how much um, artists' markets are can be driven by period. You know, look at the market for Picasso. I don't. I tell people like the market for Picasso is basically a decade to decade, and in any artist market, what's happens most often is that people start with the earliest work, they privilege the earliest work, they seek the best examples of the earliest work, and as that those examples become increasingly scarce to market, they will move on to the next immediate, the next period, and start to discover that. We've seen it happen with Picasso, we've seen it happen with de Kooning, um, and it continues. We're even seeing that, in, uh, oddly, with surrealism, you know, as the Impressionism's become, works become thin on the gra ground, and then the modern works, and the Expressionist wor works, we're sort of moving our way forward into the 20s now, and those are becoming more and more uh, valuable for, I'm assuming, the same sort of reason. Yeah, I think that people really progress through chronology, and there's this convention, and maybe someday, maybe with you know, the fascination with contemporary art, we might find a way to move, separate from this. But there's a real obsession with the beginning of an artist's career and their first breakthrough. 
um, and we attach a great amount of value to that sort of point of origin in their creativity. And value tends to then sort of descend proportionally from that moment. It's taken a very long time for people to celebrate the incredible, unique creativity and contemporaneity, for example, of Picasso's late works. But now that's a period that is arguably the most commercial. But it, there's an evolution of taste and understanding required to get to that point. So did that chronology element play into the Richter with the, you know, the dog that sold quite well? I mean, Absolutely. It's a, it's a counter. Um, basically, I mean, the conversation there is this is an early Richter. They're incredibly rare. You, you know, don't pass this up. It's priced very attractively because not everybody wants a picture of a man with a dog. It's not the most alluring subject. But this is the preeminent moment in his career. And so, you know, this is an investment. It, it's a value opportunity. And people definitely perceived it that way. So we can move on to the, the sale that's coming up rather than dwelling on the success of the past one. Two other, at the very end of the sale, strong prices for artists who were once all the rage, who are now slightly out of uh, favor and probably more out of just timing than anything else. Um, but there was a Taba Auerbach that sold for uh, 1.8 million, I think, for the full painting. Um, it was, again, a very good example of a full pa painting. And she's had a, a show retrospective uh, recently. I can't remember whether it was before or after the um, uh, a sale and a Mark Rojan at uh, the Red uh, Butterfly that also, I can't remember the price on it, did better than the numbers you set, set up uh, uh, on it. Uh, is that, again, sort of same sort of th thing of, you know, these are people with um, renowned taste and example of someone if you're, if you wanted, missed your chance to get a fold, this was the fold to, to, to get. Uh, again, and would that? I mean, I, I've noticed it hasn't sparked a new market for fold paintings. Let's put it that, that way. No, I definitely think that these works were benefited from the context in the Maclo collection. And look at these incredible collectors, and this is the contemporary art that they gravitated towards. So there's a definitely a validating effect. And then alongside that, with Auerbach, yes, it was. This is the most well-known, most celebrated, most desired series, um, and it was a beautiful example. So that's a layup. We knew with the Groschon that that was um, actually super commercial. Um, so it was estimated at two to three million, and it sold for five point six million, all in. So yes, I think they both got a lot of mileage out of being in this, being like the newer generation in this narrative of art history of the last hundred years. So before we talk about playing with the house's money and doing the second uh, uh, sale, how much did, you, you, you know, the way you talk about the sale, it, it, in retrospect, now that it's worked out, it sounds like it was an enormous opportunity and everyone would have salivated to do, do it. And yet the price entry was very, very high and you guys took the plunge. Was it because of these market opportunities that you could triangulate in these ways that you there was so much you could work with uh, or is it just a kind of just a big gamble figuring the market might be there if uh, you you sort of stood up for it 
You know, I appreciate the question because it looks so easy in hindsight, just like their collecting did. Um, but it was a, it was brinksmanship. No, but it was not self-evident um, to the market. I believe that you know the collection could be priced that way in this particular market moment, having just recently come off of the pandemic. But we believed in the collection. We just believed in the quality and we believed that quality, art of the highest quality has performed extremely well in any market climate. So if you believe that the works are A plus examples as we did, then the market climate, um, which actually proved to be a great market climate in the end, but we, we didn't know that necessarily when making the decision, but that the market climate would be somewhat irrelevant and that these examples are evergreen and in any climate would command demand, hopefully a premium. It was with, um, definitely with the spirit of, um, of risk. And also I think, you know, it was important to us that, um, we were a new team and we had something to prove and we pulled that off. So great. But you know, definitely we were willing to let it ride and try really hard to pull off a coup. I, I believe I've said this to people, maybe not publicly, but before the sale, there was every reason to believe that in retrospect, during the lockdown, that was the greatest mo moment and it might have passed. And, uh, uh, you know, it turned out it was the, sort of uh, the perfect uh, confluence, but no one could have predicted uh, uh, that. And certainly I can imagine when, when you're being forced to come up with a number and make these kinds of decisions and then have to deliver on it, it's never as easy as it uh, uh, looks. Well, and we were breathing a lot of sighs of relief in December when people, there was a new wave uh, and people weren't as operating as freely in the world all of a sudden as they had been in November. We um, enjoyed a small window of opportunity. That's that's a, a lesson in all of this that you know timing is everything and in, in how these work out. So let's let's uh, look forward to the sale that's ca coming up. I think the, the the highest value lot is the uh, Richter Seascape, and uh, I'm going to slightly put you on the spot and say even at twenty five million dollars, that seems like it's quite a low estimate given that there was a larger, uh, it's this one is much larger than one that sold 10 years ago for $19 million. And that a, I know the icebergs are different paintings, but a smaller iceberg also sold for $21 million in 2017. So there, there's, this is a come hither estimate, it seems to, to me, or am I being cavalier since it's not my, I don't have to do this element. It's majestically beautiful and it's a reflection of the heat in the market for Richter now is on the abstracts. It just is. It's on great, big, colorful, fantastic abstract works like the one that we sold in November. We don't feel that this, this has not been the area of his market and his production um, that has been most compelling on the market of late. Um, and hopefully this picture will change that. Well said. And then uh, you've got two polkas. Uh, and I suppose the success of the, the ones you sold helps set these up. One, the plastic tubs, uh, I, I'm certainly no polka expert, but I, I don't think there's a lot of other works like that uh, around. Are there comparables? Uh, 
No, and it's a great, rare, early date, the 60s. This is like prime pop. So, I, and, but in general, polka doesn't come to the market that readily. And this sophisticated understanding of polka um, from various important moments of his career, this is a really rare offering. But I think also an opportunity to educate and expand the audience as much as to welcome, you know, connoisseurs. You know, we're hoping to embrace new clients who haven't previously come to polka or had the opportunity to appreciate really great polka. So these two examples are, you know, wonderful bookends of an extended, you know, of over a 20-year period, both excellent examples of their type. But you just made a great point, which is... with the backing of the Maclo name that's now been validated by, by the sale. So even if you're a casual interest, not a, you know, real follower of the market and all, you're more likely either to take it seriously or be tempted into taking a risk on something, uh, as a collector because it's coming from this you know, collection and uh, as a sort of follow-on from the... I definitely experienced that with some people I was working with this fall who were enticed or more tempted to expand um, their own palette, say, of artists by seeing them in the context of this collection. There was definitely a, like I said, like a validating effect. And then uh, I thought the Aqualung, which I recognized was probably priced on more recent sales of them, reached the level it should have, which was, you know, a, a new high for, for uh, there are not that many of them, there's only like two or three, I, uh, I think, but in terms of the sales, a new high for, for it. And so, you know, you have another early Coons in, in this setup, one of the um, vacuum cleaner in plexiglass uh, thing. Is, is, is that a, you know, the earliest Coons stuff, whether it's the bunny on one extreme end, but even this Aqualong, is the kind of work that people really prize? Um, do they prize the the, you know, the Hoovers, or is it uh, uh, something that you have to do a little work with them to appreciate, you know, some vacuum cleaners and plexiglass? Well, it's interesting. I I actually learned through the process that people really prize the Aqualung. So um, I I haven't. It, this is a real study in Coons again, and it was an you know introduction to me for me to the fact that you know the Aqualong is like the one of the preeminent subjects for devotees of the artist. But I was always excited about this presentation because here's an artist who I think is still highly regarded for his contribution to art history, certainly in the canon not as fashionable as he was, you know, five or 10 years ago. And how do people reckon with that or intersect with that today? Like, this isn't the trendiest artist, but these works are indubitably historically important. Um, So I'm interested to see what the reaction to the vacuum cleaners is. I enjoyed learning through my clients about the Baccarat and the Aqualung, both of which were really highly appreciated. And I think um, this, you know, for us, this is an interesting market experience, the way that this collection has reframed the appreciation or prompted the reconsideration of certain artists and Coons is foremost among them. 
Well, that was sort of the point. It, that was the opportunity uh, with Coons. I mean, whatever the issues with Coons, whether it's fashion or some of the present-minded stuff of his pr production, these reframed everything. And, and the great thing about that Aqualong is just the craftsmanship on it. it. It's a bronze, a very heavy bronze sculpture that looks like you should be able to just pick it up and walk away with, with, with it. I mean, that's, uh, you know, forget everything else about his work, just the, the people who made, made that did an extraordinary job. Well, these works really bring the um, conceptualism of his work to the foreground um, and that essential combination of like sensualism with conceptualism, how it's all about the um, mystery or irony of the surface. These works present that so strongly. Oh, that's well put. Talking about another artist who seems to have been, I wouldn't say out of favor, but at least have a quiet market the last several years, who suddenly come rushing back uh, this season. You have a Warhol, a very large 80-inch uh, fright wig, in, in sort of camouflage. Again, I think uh, looking at the prices, you, you have it estimated at 15 million. I, I did look it up, there is the purple one that sold for, for 32 uh, million. So the, it, that's, is that, uh, again, more like you don't have to, so you, you can put an attractive price on, on it? Is it a comment on sort of the Warhol market being uh, somewhat it's hard to describe what's going on there. I mean, there's clearly demand for Warhol's uh, works, but they it may be more that just haven't been sold so much, but there hasn't been as much activity at this, or this level. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a reflection. I mean, everything was priced very much for the market in the present moment. Um, and, you know, this is, as you mentioned, it's a guaranteed collection. Like, we assumed a great deal of risk. So everything is priced, you know, with that acutely in mind, you know, what is today's sure value. So it is fair to read in a reaction to or a calibration of the Warhol market into the pricing. But then, you know, we want everything to be poised to exceed expectations. I mean, our estimates in every instance, but here as much as anywhere, are designed to invite and incite competition. They are a marketing instrument, a marketing tool. So we want the estimates, and and so did the consigner, want the estimates to seem attractive. That's definitely the goal. So it's very intentional, and I do think that this has been an interesting occasion to revisit Warhol and Great Warhol and what are you know the most important canonical subjects. They're represented here. They're a thoughtful array of presentations, um, whether, you know, the grisaille of the Marilyn, the um, signature blue and black of the Jackies, um, here the camouflage, like it's a wonderful aesthetic array as well as content. It's worth mentioning the Jackies did far above the estimate uh, in the f fall sale. And that was somewhat fighting a little bit of a track record where there had been, I mean, the, the part of the appeal is this was this, an, a, a, an originally assembled set of Jackies. There had been a, a later assembled uh, set of Jackies that had done certainly well, but not a, as much as been hoped for um, as the sort of previous uh, example. So uh, I'm assuming that was, again, the combination of the, the original provenance as well as the Maclows uh, uh, that you know resulted in that. 
price. Yeah, and I think it goes back to something you said earlier, Marion, which is they knew how to pick them. And that stands out even more when you're looking at a series production. So when you were able to look at the series of Jackie's and see how satisfying and balanced and like excellent this iteration was relative to others. Again, it speaks to that macro sort of magic that not only were they picking great works by great artists, but they knew how to look, walk into a room and pick the best example. And I think that really fueled prices. Um, so in that case, yeah, it sold for close to $34 million against an estimate of 15 to 20. And again, I think there's a price maximization opportunity. Look at the Maryland. The Maryland performed well, but there were have been other very high prices for works of that subject. Therefore, it was priced in relation to those previous achievements, and it didn't leave as much room for effervescent bidding battle. No, that makes sense. That's almost a good occasion to talk about the um, 1961 de Kooning that you have, which of all the works is kind of, I wouldn't say it's an odd one, but it's certainly not one that's recognizable whatever period of, of de Kooning's work is uh, uh, there. And, you know, it's you have a conservative a estimate on, on it um, of about $7 million. I think there was a comparable sold, you know, in, in, in 2006 for about $10 million. So it's, it's certainly you're not pushing that there. Is that the kind of work that's going to require a little bit of education for people? Is it going to benefit from this thing of it's in the Maclos if you want a, a, a de Kooning that's not a later period one and it's got this provenance that'll attract people uh, to it I mean or is it you just do the full-on art history uh, you know when you sell this I'm gonna go hard historical on this one because I think when you seeing the works in their original intended display or exhibition in the apartment this is really at the heart of the collection. Like this work is in dialogue with a Rothko from 1960 and a Giacometti sculpture that's from not that long before. You know, it's right at the intersection of so many dialogues in the collection and at the heart of that um, origin of abstraction moment that the collection so wonderfully delineates. So it's really interesting because like I was saying earlier about artist markets, so this market has progressed to um, later and later appreciations. Everybody wanted a 70s abstract. Everybody wants now an 80s. And so this is no longer the heart of the market, but this used to be where all the value was. And probably, you know, at the, when these works were acquired, maybe this was the most valuable or expensive. Um, so I, that re, we see, you know, that recalibration opportunity and so much of the upside opportunity in the collection is for those later, newer, works. I hope that we do this work justice too. <laughs> this, this is what it's all kind of hanging on. That was the most interesting thing you just said that, you know, this might have been the, the stretch, the prize, the thing that, you know, the, everything's changed in the 60 years that they've been uh, uh, collecting uh, and 60 years since this was uh, was made. Uh, and that one time this would have been, uh, you know, in, in the centerpiece on the mantle. And and now we think it, it, it isn't. But, you know, the market itself can make that decision again. Um, is there anything else that we haven't talked about that's coming up? I mean, there's just so much. It's easy there's to There's so things. much. Um, no, the only thing I would say is that the highest value single work in Mac 
in the second half of the collection is actually the Rothko at 35 to $50 million. So quite different from the one that we offered previously from 1960, a uh, much darker palette, um, clearly um, related to the Seagram murals, but beautiful work and has actually never before been on public view. And I just wanted to point it out is earlier we discussed the Richter as the valuable work in the group. I'm glad you did. And it should be pointed out there was a kind of brown, uh, I'm not sure of the date, but uh, that was sold eight or 10 years ago that also, you know, when it was on display, everyone was like, well, that's kind of dark and all. And it got, had a lot of bidding. I mean, there's, there, there's certainly a, a taste for uh, these works and they're probably rarer on the market, the more colorful ones. Well, and there was the SF MoMA one also um, that performed extremely well, I want to say like 2019 maybe. Uh I can't wait for the sale. I hope it's the same set of fireworks it was uh, the last time, but I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us at the Artelligence Podcast, edited by Colin Ketchin, who also composed the original music. For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Artelligence Podcast. We're looking forward to it.